Then, as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out, day after day. And night after night they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the twenty-four elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the twenty-four elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold Spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. It would be a huge mistake for us to just study Revelation 4 and 5 like it was a little science project. It's about the sights and the sounds and the smells, the, the imagery that all aims at illustrating one fundamental truth, and that is that God is so far above 
everyone else, everything else. So this morning, we're going to do things a little differently, if you haven't gathered that yet. And my hope is that instead of just reading the text and analyzing the text, that you'll experience the text. The way John did. To just get the picture in your mind of this rich, rich imagery and don't treat it like a mystery hunt, if you will. Mystery hunt's an event that they do at MIT every year, and they take the greatest puzzle writers in the world, people who come up with puzzles, and they get the best puzzle solvers in the world, and they square off. And the idea is that at the end, if you get the thing figured out, then you get this coin. You get to find out where this cool coin is. And so a lot of people, they will uh, do almost anything to solve the puzzle. I think people read Revelation that way. They think, okay, this is the greatest puzzle ever put down on paper. And if we can just solve it as the great puzzle studiers that we are and puzzle solvers that we are, then then we'll get it. But that's not really the way Revelation is supposed to be read. It's not like that or, or like this. It's, this is supposedly the world's most complicated Sudoku puzzle. And I don't know if I could solve it or not. But people see Revelation that way. They see Revelation 4 and 5, okay, who are these 24 elders? Okay, who are these winged creatures? Who are all these things? And that's a worthwhile question. But if you miss the point of it, then you can't solve the puzzle. There's no puzzle out there that should trump the answer being uh, something that trumps the actual point, the, the message, which is the worthiness of God. Revelation's given to us to reveal, not to conceal. And Revelation 4 begins, if you will, the trickier part of Revelation. Trickier because imagery gets stranger with each chapter. If you thought what you just heard was odd, just wait. It's going to get weirder than that. Trickier because the imagery gets stranger with each chapter, but in each chapter, and in chapter 4 particularly, we get one of the most stunning pictures of God in all the Bible. Think of it, those of you who are familiar with the story of Peter's vision and the story of the conversion of Cornelius, how how God gives him this dream or this vision of a sheet that falls down from heaven and on it are a bunch of unclean things, and then he's told to take and eat, and he refuses to do it because that food's unclean on there, and then the voice comes and says, listen, don't declare something unclean that God has made clean. Or Joseph, when he pictures his brothers ending up eventually bowing down to him in the dreams of the, the sheaves bowing down, or The great visions of Ezekiel or Daniel or all these other things, these apocalyptic kinds of of moments and dreams illustrate something that transcends them. They're not to be taken literally in in a certain sense. They're supposed to paint a picture. God is using a vision here to communicate a present reality. That God is the one who sits on the throne and only he is worthy. I'm going to read the text with you, Revelation 4, 1 to 11. John says, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. And they were all clothed in white, and they had gold crowns on their heads. From the the throne comes flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In the front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. And day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created 
what you please. And there's a word in there that stands out, or should. It's throne. Used 14 times, right there. 14 times. It's the key to the chapter. In fact, three out of four times that the word throne is used in the New Testament, it's in Revelation. It's a big word. Remember the background, right? We've got an emperor on the throne at this point in time who calls himself Lord and God. God here is described as Lord and God. The one who was seated on the throne. Why? Because John is trying to, as powerfully and as vividly as he can, help us understand the glory of God. And so he gives us flashes of lightning, thunder, reminiscent of Sinai, and other appearances where God shows up. And you've got the 24 elders. Now, people are torn on what that means, but what's clear is it's a group of people who have endured till the end. And I would say the consensus is the reason for 24, and that, that number pops up elsewhere in the Bible, but it could represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles as a way of saying all humanity, the representatives of everybody who's lived ever, which is also symbolized by the four living creatures that are there. We don't we won't have time to enumerate them right now, but basically you have all different types of of humanity and living things going on there. So it's all creation, all people, all even rulers from inside the church. They're all there. And they have their little mini thrones, it would appear. But night and day, they say the same thing. And in the presence of God, they take their crown off their head and they throw it down. They cast their crowns down before God. And so you have these people that normally have thrones, but all of a sudden they understand that, okay, well, my throne has no business. I have no business wearing a crown in the presence of the true king. So I'm taking it. I'm throwing it down. And I'm joining the chorus of everybody that's singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's a breathtaking image. These four living creatures, everything's covered with eyeballs. They see everything, it would seem. They represent all aspects of created life, wild animals, domestic animals, human beings, birds. Their features are similar to that of cherubim and seraphim and uh, that you see mentioned in, say, Isaiah 6 and other places. They've got wings in all the same places. And when the lamb later will break the seals, those four living creatures will summon those who are known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What do they have in common? They're all praising God with humility. All things are praising God. John isn't trying to just help us understand who they are. That's why he doesn't get too far into, okay, this represents this and this represents this. He's interested in what they're saying. He's interested in the words. He's interested in the chorus of praise, the glorification of Almighty God, the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So if I listen to this and I incline my ear toward this text and I watch what they're doing and I think about how awesome these living creatures and these elders and, and, and how awesome the scene is and what, how they are worshiping God and then I take it back to my own experience and I take it back to my own life, the question then would be if, if people who have real earthly or even heavenly rank of some kind and they are responding toward God in worship in that way, then how much more should I be responding to God in that way? Or, or is God going to see me as the guy that sneaks into the boss's office when he's out sick and puts his feet up on the desk? Is that how I worship? Do I know that I have a propensity to wear crowns in his presence? To feel like I'm in charge, to feel like it's all mine. Like, he's lucky to have me. Like, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. You know, why? Uh, you know, this whole, this whole God thing and everything like that, it's not even that relevant to me. You know, this kind of stuff. The, the prideful kind of way of approaching God. Our lives being offered or not offered in the presence of God. Well, for me, there is a great gap between my worship and that of those around the throne. And what happens here in this text is a, it's a, and what happens here this morning is a communal manifestation of what goes on all the time, or it should be. 
These two chapters of worship and praise, Revelation 4 and 5, are necessary as an introduction to John's description of things to come. So when things get really weird, I mean even weirder than that, than what we're seeing today, go back to 4 and 5 as a reference point. We're supposed to be filled with absolute, complete wonder at a God who loves us and gave himself for us, and we often do that in such a way that eventually uh, we begin to take that for granted and lose how awesome that is, and we miss at least as important of a reality. That though God and Jesus gave himself for us, he remains the center of it all. He remains the center of all creation. It is God, not humankind, for whom all things were created. It is his glory, not our glory, that is important. As the Westminster Catechism states, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We should never neglect that reality or come to feel that somehow the chief end of God is to glorify us. We must never measure what happens or what is described in the book of Revelation from a human standpoint. Everything in life on this earth and everything that's existing elsewhere is measured against who God is. And so that raises the question for me, do I revere God? Do I glorify God? I don't mean just, oh yeah, sure I do. No. Look at the picture here. I mean, is there any doubt whether or not everyone gathered around the throne of God means it? Uh, it says it goes on night and day, day after day, day after day. It's not, a, it's not something they have to make time for in their busy schedule. It's what they do. It's who they are because of the one in whose presence they are. And so I ask myself, what is my crown? What would I dare to wear in the presence of God that might enthrone me a little bit higher than I ought to be? That would cause me to see myself as somewhat of a king unto myself. What do I use as a way of dethroning the true king in my life? What is it that I am too proud to throw down? What is it that gives me a sense of power and control that I refuse to submit? Those are the crowns. Our crown is whatever makes us feel worthy to be king or queen. And to cast it down at the feet of Jesus is to say, you're the king. You're the king. You're the king. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what we do when we come to worship. That's what we do as Christians when we offer our lives as living sacrifices to God. Night and day, night and day, just like they do. Night and day we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So whether it's money or power or sex or greed or others' approval, the need to fit in, the need to feel important, whatever it is, take the crown, throw it down. That's the message of Revelation 4. You know, crowns are a little bit like baseball caps. I had a shock recently when I tried to put on one of my old hats from a long time ago and it didn't fit anymore. My head had gotten bigger. And uh, I thought to myself, I was like, I'm sure it's just the brain has grown and swelled I think I have a, a, a layer of fat on my forehead now is the real reason. But, uh, you know, very similarly here, Satan has no problem if he thinks that the crown's getting uncomfortable for you, making you a new one that feels better. So that you keep it on, you keep it nice and snug. Anything to keep you from throwing it down. It is possible to say Jesus is Lord with our mouths while never actually doing it, throwing our crown down. But that, sisters and brothers, is a great blasphemy to stand in the presence of the awesome one who's wearing our crown. We even understand this in certain cultures. When the commander walks in the room, you take your hat off. Well, we're in the presence of God. Far be it from us to be wearing our crowns instead of throwing them down. I'd like to offer a prayer for us and then Actually, as we do, would you stand, please? We're going to sing a song together. Our Heavenly Father, we say this morning with our songs, our worship, 
you alone are worthy. And we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father, the whole earth is filled with your glory. And so, Father, fill this room now. Help us to bask in how awesome you are. Keep us from half measures. Keep us from wearing our crowns. And instead, Father, we throw them down in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, lift your voice in this morning. Sing worthy.
Jesus, we continue this morning seeking you, Father, seeking your heart, leaning into your presence, Lord. Jesus, we offer you this time. It's in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Go and have a, have a seat, church. We continue with the text. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. Have you ever wanted to see God's will be done but felt completely helpless? That's where John is. The scroll has God's plan on it, and it but it's all wrapped up and it's sealed. Seven seals, totally sealed, completely. A lot more firmly than one of those knots in your tennis shoe that you get when you're trying to tie them or untie them. Absolutely nobody. They even look under the earth. Nobody is able to open it. But John says, I looked around and nobody could open it, meaning nobody could get the plan of God into motion. Nobody could open it to where it could become reality. Nobody could, could put it in motion. And so I wept. He cried. Not a little either. Not a crocodile tear. Bitterly. Extremely. He's devastated to think, oh no, God has a great plan for what's about to take place, for what's in the world, but, but nobody can put it into motion. As many of these, you know, just tremendous images that are around, 24 elders can't do it and the winged creatures can't do it. And they look all over the place, high and low, for somebody that can actually open the seals. Nobody can. And that feeling when you look around at the world and you see the brokenness, you see the, the scourges of evil everywhere, whether it's extreme poverty, homelessness, human trafficking, racism, violence, ugliness, conceit, lying, corruption. We look around everywhere and we've gotten so... Um, lulled into the sense that there is, in fact, nobody who can open the seal. Except instead of weeping bitterly, some of us might do that sometimes, but we just go numb. We assume, okay, I guess it's just not going to happen. There's no way that this could be transformed, something could change. I mean, the Christians of that age had to feel similarly. They're looking around at the world they're in, and they see the government around them persecuting them. If we go back a few decades before Domitian to, to Emperor Nero, a great persecutor of the church. He was known for using Christians as human torches at his parties. Not a great guy. And so they had to be thinking, okay, how long is this going to go on? Who's going to put a stop to this madness? Who's going to, we know God wants to, but but. Nothing is, is happening. Nothing seems to be changing. And, and I don't know what to do about it. Even here in the midst of John's tears, there is good news. Beginning in Revelation 5, verses 5 to 14. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out in every part of the earth. And he stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings.